0: Isaiah 56, verses 1 to 8. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let no eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure Forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 40. Uh, we pick up after a group has just killed a man named Stephen. In Acts 8 picks up the story, and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So... There was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practised sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptised. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands he offered the money and said give me also this ability so that everyone on whom i lay my hands may receive the holy spirit peter answered may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of god with money you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before god repent of this wickedness And pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now, An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south on the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea.
1: Lovely to be with you again, Union Church. Lovely to be able to share God's word with you. My apologies if I'm whispering throatily into the microphone, but I'm recovering from a bit of an infection. So let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have gathered us here tonight. We thank you that you've gathered us to sit under your word and to hear it. And, to obey it. and we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to learn more of all that the Lord Jesus continued to do and teach in the Apostles and all that the Lord Jesus continues to do and teach even today. Amen. March 12, 2007, a fledgling movie studio began shooting its first movie ever. It was the last roll of the dice, really, for them. Uh, They were about to go bankrupt, so was their parent company. And in fact, they're about to go bankrupt for the second time. Uh, This movie had been through many different directors and even more writers in the 17 years that they'd been trying to get it made. And when filming began, the script was nothing more than a bare outline. Much of the finished product would actually be improvised on set. The director was a gamble. And the main star even more so. He was a controversial choice and he had a long history of substance abuse, arrest, rehab and frequent relapses. No one had any idea what they had begun that day. But the movie they were making was Iron Man. And the studio was Marvel Studios, who now, 12 years later, has raked in $22.5 billion in revenue just from the the movies alone, let alone all the merchandising and all the rest of it. They have nine movies that have made more than a billion dollars and now hold the crown as the holding the, the highest grossing movie in all movie history. Not bad. For just twelve years. But right back there on that first day, no one had any idea what they were beginning. No one had any idea just how big this thing they started was about to become. It's very hard to see how amazing, how incredible, how huge something will be when you're just kind of right back there at the beginning. And so I've often wondered whether the apostles realized what they had begun that day when the Lord Jesus Christ said to them, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the very ends of the earth in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Did they know just how big this gospel was that they were going to proclaim? Did they know how powerful it was going to be? Did they know just how many would embrace it and just how many it would embrace? Did they know how far it would reach? Did they know just whom this gospel could save? And the answer in Acts chapter 8 has to be a resounding no. They had no idea what they were doing. Because here they are, they're actually, we're a quarter of the way through the book, we're a quarter of the way through the book of Acts, and the apostles aren't leading a grand global mission proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. They're still in Jerusalem. They haven't even made it to the Judea part yet, let alone to Samaria or to the very ends of the earth. And strangely, what takes them beyond the walls of Jerusalem is not the leadership of the apostles or the evangelistic fervor of the early church, it's the persecution that followed Stephen's martyrdom that we learned about last week. The persecution was so severe, we learn in the beginning of Acts, that like a toddler stamping on an anthill, the church is scattered. And we're told in verse 4 that as they went, they went preaching the word wherever they went. They went proclaiming the good news. They went evangelizing. Every single Christian... Began to speak about Jesus, began to proclaim Jesus, began to talk about Jesus, began to gossip about Jesus. And Stephen's death, rather than destroying the church, leads to an explosion of resurrection life. And it's hard not to see the, the hand of the risen Lord Jesus continuing to do his work, making persecution serve mission. God's plan for his church is not just kind of prayer and property sharing in the in the safe haven of Jerusalem. Jesus himself is initiating the next phase of his mission. And it is a sober thought to think that one of the ways that God spurs the church into missionary service is through the suffering that she endures. But Acts chapter 8 particularly follows the exploits of one very ordinary evangelist amongst many. Philip. And yes, occasionally the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ is kind of pushed forward by someone with a big name, a Billy Graham or a John Chapman, but most of the time it goes forward through very ordinary people, people like Philip, people like you, people like me. And today we're talking about Philip and those he evangelised. And he evangelizes three groups in particular. Here we go. There we go. He evangelizes three groups in particular. He evangelizes the Samaritans. He evangelizes Simon the sorcerer. And he evangelizes the Ethiopian eunuch. And it's all there on the outline that you can see behind me if you're the type of person who likes to to take notes. Uh, But it would be very helpful if you have your Bibles open there. uh, And really... We could just kind of read these three groups of people as just what they are, three stories of all that the risen Lord Jesus continued to do and teach. But actually, it's deeper than that. Come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. If you've got a Bible there. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. Because the Lord Jesus sends Philip to do something quite specific. And these three people have... these. These groups actually have something in common. So Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 1 and 2 says this, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation. See, there were two groups of people who were part of the Jewish family And yet, they were also excluded from the Jewish family. Uh, Verse one: there were the eunuchs, uh, those who'd been castrated, uh, those who who weren't whole; they weren't fully men anymore. But then there was also those of illegitimate verse, uh, illegitimate birth in verse two, meaning those of mixed parents, those with only one Jewish parent, even if it was back ten or more generations. Uh, And these two groups of people—they were. They were part of the Jewish family and yet it seems like they had no future in the Jewish family. Seeing it, it, it's Father's Day. It's those who had illegitimate fathers and those who could never be fathers that are talked about here. And so they're cut off. They're not allowed to be part of the assembly of God's people. Meaning they weren't allowed to go up to the temple and to pray and to celebrate the festivals and to offer sacrifices. They weren't allowed to draw near to God. They were left far away from God and far away from the rest of God's people. And they were allowed no closer than even an unclean Gentile. And so far the church is completely Jewish. It's completely made up of Jewish people. Uh, Some of them are fair dinkum Hebrew speaking Jews uh, living in Jerusalem and Judea. And others live in foreign nations in, in the rest of the Roman Empire and they're Jewish but they speak Greek as their, their primary language. They've been scattered amongst the Roman Empire. So in Acts chapter 2, if you remember, the crowd was Jewish but they came from over 16 different nations and they spoke a variety of languages. Or, or even last week, uh, Simon, or sorry, sorry, Stephen was preaching in the freedman Synagogue, a synagogue for people from all sorts of Greek-speaking nations. But they were all Jewish. They were all included in the family. But in Acts chapter 8, we meet two groups of people who are excluded. We meet a whole city of people of illegitimate birth. And we meet a eunuch from Ethiopia. And the big question is, who can the gospel save? These are those that Judaism could not save. These are those that Judaism had no time for, no place for. And is the gospel going to be any different. So firstly then the Samaritans and the Samaritans were, they lived just to the north of Jerusalem and the Samaritans were hated by the Jews as half-breeds and as heretics. Uh, Just a little bit of a history lesson for you but when uh, the 10 northern tribes of Israel uh, were taken into exile by Assyria in 722 BC, Those that were left interbred with foreigners who were brought into the region to kind of repopulate the area. And they became the Samaritans. And they even held to a kind of hybrid version of the Jewish faith, accepting only the first five books of the Old Testament. And they were very much excluded from Judaism. In fact, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated one another, and they were enemies. And if you remember the Lord Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan... Well, the great twist in the story was that a Samaritan man would care about a Jewish man at all and would, would actually go out of his way to take care of him. Now, incidentally, the Samaritans actually still exist today as, as a people group. Uh, there's less than a 1,000 of them. And it's a very sad story there. It's a, a story of suffering and of persecution. Uh, they suffer terribly now with many genetic disorders that occur from, from interbreeding. But back here in Acts 8, Philip goes down to Samaria, to this whole city full of those of illegitimate birth, and in verse five, he proclaims to them Jesus as Messiah. And they listen with great attention in verse six. His miraculous healings and exorcisms are greeted with great joy in verses seven and eight. And in verse twelve, we're told that many believed and were baptized. How wonderful. What a glorious thing. So many say that actually in verse 14, the apostles who are still back in Jerusalem hear that Samaria has accepted the word of God. Not just some Samaritans have accepted the word of God, but that actually Samaria has accepted the word of God. And that little phrase, that idea that they've accepted or that they've received the word of God is actually like a little bit of a code phrase in the book of Acts. It comes up again and again and again. And it indicates that the gospel of Jesus has actually advanced into this new group of people. It was used back in Acts chapter 2 when the Greek-speaking Jews first heard the gospel and believed. And it will be used again in chapter 11 verse 1 when the first Gentile convert becomes a Christian. But here it's about the Samaritans. They have heard of Jesus and they love him and they want to follow him. And the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus, their Messiah, and their persecution of the church has now led to many Samaritans embracing Jesus as their Messiah with great joy. But then there's a very strange episode in verses 14 to 17. Peter and John have heard that the Samaritans have believed and they go down to visit them. And then you get this extraordinary little verse in in verse 15 onwards. It says this, it says, When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this is one of the most perplexing and debated verses in the whole of the book of Acts. Uh, There are whole theologies written on kind of this verse and this verse alone. And it does seem at first glance to almost suggest that there's two classes of Christian. Those who have the Holy Spirit and those who don't have the Holy Spirit. Uh, After all, how can the Samaritans believe and even be baptised without receiving the Holy Spirit? How can they have this divided experience? And at this point, so much of, of my theology kind of rebels against me. Uh, so much of what we read in the book of Romans, chapter 6 to 8, or in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, or in 1 Corinthians 12, or many other places in the New Testament would seem to, to say that this sort of thing just isn't possible. God's Word is always spiritually discerned. How can anyone say that Jesus is Messiah? unless they are speaking by the Spirit of God. But the first thing to note is actually this event is actually unique in all of the Bible. There's nowhere else in the book of Acts where this happens. Everywhere else in the book of Acts, when someone becomes a Christian, when someone believes in the Lord Jesus, it's a one-stage event of repentance and faith leading to receiving the Spirit and to baptism. Uh, This event is not normal even by the standards of the book of Acts. So what is kind of going on here? Why is this kind of done the way that it's done? And I think there's a really important reason. And I think that it's a really important reason uh, that doesn't resort to sort of a a second baptism of the Holy Spirit like uh, some churches teach. And it doesn't resort to kind of a laying on of hands from uh, an apostle or from one of his successors as other churches teach. Uh, No, I think we need to read this passage in context. And we need to understand just how delicate this situation really was. This is the story of the gospel making its very first baby steps outside of Judaism to include the excluded Samaritans. But remember the Jews and the Samaritans, they've been enemies for centuries. They hate each other like poison. What's going to happen now that the Samaritans have become Christians? The gospel had been welcomed by the Samaritans, but would the Samaritans be welcomed by the church? Would they be accepted by the the, the Jewish Christians as being the real deal, as being one of them, as being part of the same church? Or would there now be two churches of Jesus Christ, the church in Jerusalem and the church in Samaria? But God's temporary delay in pouring out the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans gives the apostles the chance to come down and to investigate and to realise that, yes, Philip has proclaimed to them to the gospel and to realise, yes, they have put their faith and put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they put their hands on them and they pray for them and the Spirit comes. A public sign, both to the Samaritans but actually probably more importantly to the existing Jewish church that these people, really belong to Jesus now. That the Samaritans are not just included in salvation, but they're also included in the church and on precisely the same terms as the Jewish Christians. God is making a really important point here. There is one church and the Samaritans are part of it. And seeing it was Peter who did it, No one, either Jewish or Samaritan, was ever going to be able to deny it. And in fact, every time the gospel does advance to a a new group of people, it's going to be Peter who is going to be right there, not just embracing them as fellow believers, but even embracing them as being part of the one church of Jesus Christ. That's the first group that Philip evangelizes, the Samaritans. Those who were excluded... But now in Jesus, they are included. Included in Christ and included in the church. All that is, except it seems for one of them. Because interweaved into this little story is this strange story of Simon, the Samaritan sorcerer. So impressive were Simon's sorceries that the Samaritans called him the great power of God in verse 10. And he had astonished them, in verse 11, for many, many years with the miracles that he was able to perform. And this reminds us that it really must have been the word of God that transformed the Samaritans and brought them to repentance and faith. Philip's performing of many signs amongst them, even though it brought them great joy, well, they were used to that sort of thing. They were used to kind of the show, but they weren't used to hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that changed their life. But Simon too, it seems, becomes a Christian. He believes and he's baptised in verse 13. And subsequently Simon follows Philip around, constantly astounded by the signs and the wonders that Philip performs, perhaps foreshadowing his unhealthy interest in power. But really this is Christianity's first celebrity convert, and we do love a celebrity convert, don't we? We do love it when someone important, you know, a movie star or a, a sports star or something like that, becomes a Christian. We love to, to hear their testimony. We love to invite them to, to speak at our events. We love a celebrity convert. And here is the first one. He, he's popular. He's well-known. He's, he's charismatic. He's a powerful individual. Think of, the, the, of how he could endorse Christianity. Think of how he could speak at all of those evangelistic events, standing up and talking about how Jesus had changed him. Think of the money that he could give to this this new fledgling movement. And yet when Simon sees the, the Holy Spirit coming upon people by the laying on of the apostles' hands, his true nature is revealed. In verses 18 and 19, the apostles are offered money in exchange for the power to bestow the Holy Spirit on people. And Peter immediately rebukes Simon. Have a look at verse 20. Peter answered, and it's the strongest of words, isn't it? May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, And pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. You see, Peter looks straight at this man. Peter looks straight at this baptized man and says, you are full of sin. And you have no part, you have no share in this matter. And Simon is proof that being baptized does not save you. Baptism is just a symbol, a symbol of a reality, a symbol of repentance. And a symbol on its own means nothing. A symbol only has power if there is a reality that is behind it. And in this case, there is no reality to Simon's repentance. God knows those who are truly being baptized and God knows those who just went for a swim. Now, why? Why is Simon's heart, how do we know that Simon's heart is is so wrong before God? Because he tried to buy the gift of God with money. And gift is the key word. In the midst of a passage that's all about how the excluded can be included, who is the one who finds himself excluded? It's the one who thinks that you can earn salvation. And the things of God. It's the one who thinks you can achieve it. It's the one who thinks that worst of all, he can buy it. It's the one who thinks that being part of God's people and God's kingdom requires a credit card. It's anyone who thinks that the gift of God is anything other than it is a gift to be accepted, to be received that is a free gift of undeserved grace because of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. The only one in this passage that the gospel does not seem to be able to save is the one who thinks that they can earn what is a gift. And henceforth, from this moment, any attempt to turn the spiritual into the commercial, any attempt to traffic in the things of God has been called simony after Simon the sorcerer. And once Simon has been dealt with, the apostles, well, they travel back to Jerusalem slowly, evangelizing many Samaritan villages on the way. But to Philip, a new frontier is given to cross. Another evangelistic frontier is given, this time with the Ethiopian eunuch. And this is just an amazing story, this one. Uh, This one has always warmed my heart. And it warms the heart of many, uh, particularly of those who find themselves without children, and without family as they grow old. And God is very interested in this man's salvation. Just look at how out of his way Philip is sent to share the gospel with this man. In verse 26, an angel directs Philip to the road that he's traveling on. And then in verse 29, the Spirit directs him to the very chariot that the Ethiopian is riding in. And in both cases, it's normal in the Bible that God's leading is verbal. It's not somehow mysterious. God doesn't give a vague feeling, but God gives a direct instruction in accord with his publicly revealed will. It's very clear. This is another step in Jesus' plan to take the gospel to Judea, Samaria and the very ends of the earth. And then in verse 39, the Spirit even seizes Philip again and kind of sends him somewhere else. Although we're not told the details of how, and nor is that the point of the story. But there on the road is an Ethiopian eunuch. Another one of these excluded ones. Uh, This time because he's been sexually altered. He's been castrated. But did you know that eunuchs were actually the first workaholics? The eunuchs were the first workaholics. They were the first to choose career over family. Quite literally. It wasn't always them that made the choice. But in the ancient world, it often was them who made the choice. Because being a eunuch was actually very good for your career. Uh, Many of the kings of the ancient world, they they didn't want their high officials and their high servants to be fully equipped men because they would work day and night in the palace with all the royal wives and royal concubines and and royal daughters. You had to kind of, you know... Protect the bloodline. You had to, to to make sure everything was going to be okay, and so they preferred eunuchs. And so some people volunteered for the procedure in order to get a better life for themselves. They chose the life. They chose to never marry. They chose to to never have children in order to rise to high position. And just kind of just remember that next time you're tempted to complain about your workplace conditions. But for this man, the sacrifice would seem to have paid off. In verse 27, he is a high government official now. He's in charge of all the government's money. This is a very important man. And this man is very Jewish. Oh, now we'd like to think, many preacher would like to think that this is kind of the first black African convert to, to Christianity. Uh, but I'm not sure that that's the case. For starters, he's very Jewish. He's just visited the temple in verse 27. And now he's on his way home. And he's reading from the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, You know, he's pretty Jewish. And of course, uh, you know, Ethiopia at this point refers to kind of a a part of Africa which is in southern Egypt and, and kind of the northern Sudan. And so I take it, actually, that this chap is probably a Jewish person. He's probably an exile. He's probably like another Joseph or, or another Daniel. He's someone who's risen to a position of great authority and incredible power because God was with him. But I don't think that he's, he's actually a, a Gentile. The first Gentile convert comes in another couple of chapters time when Cornelius comes to know the Lord Jesus. But even now, God has arranged for this man to hear about Jesus. But you have to understand the deep spiritual longing of this man. This is a man who has great power. This is a man who has great success. This is a man who has risen to the very top of his career chain. And he's paid a terrible price for it. And it no longer satisfies him. In fact, it's doubtful that he ever found any satisfaction in his career at all. For he has no one to pass his name on He has no one to share his success with. He has no one to remember him. He's lost and he's lonely. And so he's made the, the 1500 kilometre journey to the temple to worship God. A journey that would have taken months, perhaps a whole year, uh, would have been the, the round trip. And he's done it at great personal risk and perhaps even great risk to his career. And it's a journey that would have ended in nothing but disappointment because he is excluded from the assembly of God. He wouldn't have been allowed into the temple. He wouldn't have been allowed to make sacrifices. He wouldn't have been allowed to come in and to pray. He had come all this way, gone through great trouble and great expense, only to be excluded. And so here he is on his way home, empty disappointed and so he's come back to a part of the scriptures that I imagine he knows well and he rejoices in he's come back to the book of Isaiah and I wonder if it's Isaiah 56 that he had in his mind that that passage that we read earlier because in Isaiah 56 what was God's promise what was God's promise to those who were excluded and cut off God's promise to the eunuchs was that they would have a name. A name that could never be cut off. A name beyond success. A name beyond power. A name and a memorial that was even better than sons and daughters. An everlasting name. And a place with God. No longer excluded, no longer cut off, but welcome and restored. A new home. And not just for the eunuchs. But for the foreigners as well, for the, to those who are of illegitimate birth too, they would be welcomed into the courts of God's temple one day. That's what Isaiah 56 taught. And so here he is reading Isaiah, reading Isaiah 53, uh, reading from verse 7, Reading, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And just as he's reading these, these wonderful words, a man appears beside his chariot. I mean, he's, he's riding down the road, he's moving, and there's a man now running beside his chariot. And, uh, you know, Philip, that's why he's running in verse 30. He's got to kind of keep up with this chariot. It's almost kind of a comical scene. And, and this man kind of pipes up to this Ethiopian and says, oh, I see you're, you're reading the Bible. Do you know what it means? And at this point, the eunuch turns to him and says in verse 34, no, I don't. Please tell me. In fact, I beg you, tell me. Who is the prophet? Who is this that the prophet is talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about another? You know, I beg you, I have to know, who is this one? Who is this one who is going to bring about all the promises that Isaiah 56 makes to me? Who is it by his sacrifice will give me an everlasting name that means I will never be cut off? Who is it who will voluntarily become a eunuch? No one will remember him. No one will remember his descendants, for he will have none. Who is it who will be cut off so that I can be made whole? Who is it who will be excluded so that I can be embraced physically and spiritually and emotionally? And Philip turns to him and says, Ah, he's talking about Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about how we are all spiritually eunuchs. We are all cut off from God because of our sin. That none of us can come anywhere near him. All of us are unclean. And let me tell you how Jesus was excluded so that we could be embraced. Let me tell you about how Jesus was made unclean So that we could be cleansed. Let me tell you about how Jesus died so that we might have eternal life. Let me tell you about how Jesus took our place and became our substitute. And what an amazing thing for that man to hear. All of his disappointment, all of his frustration all of his isolation and loneliness. And here is Philip telling him the answer. And the answer is Jesus. And the encounter leaves the Ethiopian eunuch transformed and filled with joy. But for both the eunuch and for the Samaritans, the gospel has included those who were excluded, Those whom Judaism could not save and had no place for, well, it was always God's will that in Jesus they would find their place amongst God's people forever. All because Jesus took our place at the cross. All because Jesus took our place in being excluded from God, being excluded because of sin, being cut off from the one who made us all. And because Jesus is excluded as we deserve, we can be included and even embraced as Jesus deserved. And so salvation and inclusion is nothing that we can accomplish. It's only something that Jesus can accomplish for us by taking our place and giving it to us as a gift that we humbly receive. Which is why, of course, that Simon the sorcerer could not be included, whilst he still thought that he could buy it with money. But what we are witnessing here is that the gospel is finally leaving Jerusalem and exploding out of its Jewish roots. But the big question is still there. How much further can it go? How much bigger can the gospel get? Who can the gospel really save? And can the gospel even save perhaps its greatest enemy? And to find the answer to that question, you have to come back next week for Acts chapter 9. Or you could just kind of go ahead and read it this week and spoil it for yourself. But let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus we thank you that for our sake he was excluded so that we might be embraced and we thank you that now that salvation is offered to us by you and by the Holy Spirit as a gift that we but humbly receive And can never earn. And we pray Lord that we might be those. Who do humbly receive the gift. That you offer to each one of us. And find our place with you. And with your people. Not just now. But forever. Amen.